0: We are approaching the last five chapters of the book, chapters 17 through 21. I don't know if there's any dirt roads in Cincinnati. Are there any left? Are there? Have you ever been on a dirt road? Down South Carolina? <laughs> Not here. Well, these last five chapters have been compared to driving on pavement and then suddenly driving on a dirt road and that's because they're so different something changes there's a cycle in the book which uh, we have talked about many times where uh, people are living for god and then they go astray and they start sinning and they do what's evil in the eyes of the lord and uh, God brings judgment upon them. And what He does is he, he would raise up people to oppress His people and to make them miserable and so that they would recognize the sin that they've been committing and repent of it. And so it's a cycle where they sin, God brings an oppressor on the people, the people cry out to the Lord for help and deliverance and repentance, and then God raises up a judge or a governor or a deliverer And he delivers the people. And there's peace, basically, until that judge dies, and then the cycle starts all over again. And this is what's transpired as we've moved through the book. And each cycle has been a little bit different, some of them have been pretty wobbly. But when we come to these chapters, 17 through 21, that all stops. There's, There's no oppressor, there's nobody crying out to God. There's no deliverer. But there is a recognizable transition from everyone doing what is evil in the eyes of the Lord to everyone doing what is right in their own eyes. These chapters are like an epilogue or an appendix to the book. Some, some of you have read a book and at the end of the book there's like a little appendix of the laughter thought about something. That's what this is, chapters 17 through 21. And what they do is they they depict the general conditions that were occurring during the period of the judges. And we've, we've read through all of these fellows and, and the women that have been judges, the things that have came and gone in this book, But what this is going to do is it's going to make sure that we, before we leave this period, it's going to make sure, the author's going to make sure that we realize what life was like. That the things we're getting ready to read are so horrendous and rated R, it's unbelievable. The last five chapters are just rated R. Judges is not rated R, the last five definitely are. And it's so bad. But we're supposed to understand that these are not isolated incidents, that the entire period is characterized by this kind of stuff. It's characterized by religious syncretism, which means uh, merging religious beliefs and theologies until really things aren't recognizable. I and mean, so, in this situation, the Israelites worshiped the one true God. But they began to merge the Uh, Canaanite practices and beliefs inside and into their worship of God until it was just a monstrosity. That characterizes the entire period we've been studying. It is corrupt religion, filthy and wrong. This period is also characterized by social disorder people are doing things that you're not supposed to do. Go, you know, leaders and groups of people tribes. So the entire period is characterized by this religious atrocities, apostasy and social disorder. It's supposed to be showing us how ordinary people these last five chapters. It's trying to show us how ordinary people fared every day during this period. And we've talked about this as being the Canaanization of Israel because we remember that when God brought the people of Israel into the Promised Land, He said, these people got to go. They can't stay here. You can't live with them because if you do, you will become like them. And so it's the Canaanization of Israel because they did not make the people leave. And they absolutely began to adopt all of their beliefs and practices. Now, in these five chapters... There's a different phrase. Instead of it being, and the people did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord, there's a new phrase. It says that in those days, there was no king. And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. This is clarifying uh, for us that this is talking about the entire nation. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Everybody. The entire nation, everybody was doing what seemed right to them. Truth was relative. The standard was not God. You know, in America, we have a, a, our government and our educational system, and many of the churches in our country have abandoned the authority of Scripture. And so there's no uh, mark that you measure yourself from. And this was the problem in this period. This phrase uh, works as bookends to this entire piece, chapters 17 through 21, because the phrase is said in the very beginning and the phrase is repeated at the very end. It's also repeated a couple of more times at key moments as we move through these chapters. And so when we talk about a phrase that says, in those days, there was no king in Israel, we're talking about someone writing the book of Judges during the monarchy when there was a king. And he is looking back on this period of time. In those days, there wasn't a king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And then finally, um, what happens in these five chapters uh, to make things even more confusing, and just remember that if you sometimes you'll read a book, and at the end of the book there's this, there's this little piece Something, Some side thought, some supplemental thought, an appendix. That's what this is. And so it's important for us to remember that these five chapters do not occur at the end of the book. They actually occur at the beginning. Now we know this from several reasons, but one of them is in chapter 20, verses 27 and 28. Here we find that the Ark of the Covenant is in Bethel. And that happened at a very early period before it was moved to Shiloh. And at this very early period, Aaron's grandson Phinehas was serving in the tabernacle. We're going to read in our chapter today about a Levite named Jonathan who is the grandson of Moses. And so what we're going to be reading chapter chapters 17 through 21 are things that have occurred Within a hundred years of the conquest, we remember Judges chapter one and Judges Judges chapter two and what we studied there. And and, in Judges chapter two, verses six through ten, it talks about how it talks about how the people abandoned God and went back to the Baals and worshiping Baals, doing the practices of the Canaanites. It says that this happened as soon as the generation died that had witnessed the exodus and the conquest that was led by Joshua. So as soon as those people died, everybody went crazy, everybody abandoned God, and began doing what was right in their own eyes. So chronologically, what happens is we move straight from Samson to Samuel. In the middle are these five chapters. And what these five chapters are going to do is in chapters 17 through 18, it's going to tell us the fate of the tribe of Dan. That's what we're going to be looking at today. And then the final three chapters deal with the fate of the tribe of Benjamin. But in your Bible, you're reading through it, you get to Samson, the book of Judges is over because the, the next five chapters have to do with things that have been happening in the entire period. The book of Judges ends and the book of Samuel begins because he's the next judge, First Samuel. Of course, in your Bible, there's the book of Ruth in between. And the things that happen in the book of Ruth occur also during this period of the Judges, specifically during a famine. So if that hasn't confused you, uh, what I'm trying to do is explain er, the best I can is that these chapters just want us to know what life was like. For you and me, if we were there, this is what it would have been like. So we're going to begin in chapter 17 this morning, verse 1. There was a man from the hill country of Ephraim named Micah. And he said to his mother, the 1,100 pieces of silver taken from you, and that I heard you utter a curse about, here they are. I have the silver with me, I took it. So now I'm returning it to you. Then his mother said, my son, you are blessed by the Lord. What? And he returned the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother, and his mother said, I personally consecrate the silver to the Lord for my son's benefit to make a carved image overlaid with silver. And so he returned the silver to his mother and she took five pounds of silver and gave it to the silversmith. And he made it into a, a carved image overlaid with silver and it was in Micah's house. This man Micah had a shrine and he made an ephod and a household idols. And he installed one of his sons to be priest. And in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. that is a mess. Have you ever had something that was so messed up you didn't know where to start? This is so messed up I don't know where you would start. I can't even begin to tell you what's, what's up and down with this thing. You know, Normally, what's happened here is is that Micah stole his mom's money and then gave it back to her uh, because he was afraid of his curse. And so when she gave it back to him, the mom's like, oh, no, I cursed the person who stole this, and that's my son. So now she's trying to throw up a a, a blessing to the Lord to counteract the curse. And then she says, you know what? I'm just going to give this money to God. And instead of taking it to the tabernacle, she decides to use it to make these images. And so Micah has church in his house. He's got a shrine in his house. He's appointed one of his sons to be his priest. You know, normally a name reflects the person who named him. Micah's name means uh, who is like Jehovah. So to give Micah that name, it gives us the impression that, uh, that his parents feared God, at least at some point. We notice that the father's not mentioned here, just the mother. So she may be a widow. And there's this striking, terrible merging of worshiping God with idolatry. Everything here is wrong, and any mention of God is betrayed by their actions. The home is the basis of society, it's to be protected. There is an order that God has established. A man and a woman marry, and they have their children, and the children are in the home with them. That's the way it's supposed to be. They're supposed to love each other and their kids, and the parents are supposed to live sacrificially for their children to give their kids the the best chance they could possibly have in life. That's the order that God has established. And when we look across our country, that's not what we see. And as a matter of fact, the, the educational system and the government are doing everything they can to keep that from occurring. Paying people off with checks. And it's not the way it's supposed to be. And so the church should be exemplary in this regard. Verse 7, let's see what happens. There was a young man, a Levite, from Bethlehem in Judah who resided within the clan of Judah. The man left the town of Bethlehem in Judah to settle wherever he could find a place. On his way, he came to to Micah's home in the hill country of Ephraim. Where do you come from? Micah asked him. And he said, I'm a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, and I'm going to settle wherever I can find a place. So Micah replied, well, stay with me and be my father and priest. And I will give you four ounces of silver a year, along with your clothing and provisions. So the Levite went in and agreed to stay with the man, and the young man became like one of his sons. Micah consecrated the Levite, and the young man became his priest and lived in Micah's house. Then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will be good to me, because because a Levite has become my priest. We're going to find out later in chapter 18 that this Levite, his name is Jonathan, and he's Moses' grandson. The tribe of Levi is where you find priests. You don't find uh, priests from the tribe of Ephraim. The way God set this up, there was 12 tribes of Israel. The tribe of Levi served all of the other tribes. And they were to be they were to be uh, protected and funded and supported by the other tribes. That was the way it was set up. So uh, some of the people in the tribe of Levi were priests. They had to be uh, a man who was qualified. And they became priests. Out of those, the high priest had to come from the line of Aaron. But everybody else in the tribe, they... they uh, they assisted the priests, they assisted the services of the tabernacle. they taught the law to the people, and they were very much involved in the music and praising in Israel, the tribe of Levi. And of course, all of this was occurring in the one place that God had designated, which was the temple, the tabernacle. And so uh, there was't 800 or two places, there was one. There was one. The tabernacle was in Bethel. The tabernacle was eventually moved to Shiloh. Eventually, a temple was built in Jerusalem. But it was at that one specific location. And why? Because that's where the priesthood was. That's where the presence of God was in the Holy of Holies. The entire system of the law was designed for the nation of Israel to to come to the tabernacle at different points of the year, to offer sacrifices, to pray, to make new commitments to God, to thank God for all of the blessings. And so the tribe of Levi was supported by the people. And so here we've got a a Levite who's living in Bethlehem. Well, there were 48 cities that were given to the Levites to live in, and they were cities that were within the territories given to the different tribes. Bethlehem is not one of them. So for a Levite to be living in Bethlehem means that uh, it indicates that the the priests were scattered abroad because they weren't being supported. They were trying to find places. People weren't going to church. And the people that were going to church weren't giving. And the system was collapsing. And so priests are coming of age. They're ready to serve in in the tabernacle. But they can't. And so this is a condition it 's an it's a indication that the nation is not going to church and they 're not doing things like they 're supposed to. We see here that Micah stole eleven hundred dollars or eleven hundred shekels of silver from his mom, and uh, we remember that Delilah was offered eleven hundred shekels of silver from the different leaders of the Philistines to betray Samson remember so Uh, the philistines had five major cities there was a a governor or a king or whatever you want to call them a president or whatever of all of these city states these five city states and one of each one of them offered 1100 shekels to delilah if she could figure out how to betray samson well because money fluctuates in value the the price of gold the price of silver and it, it did back then too it's the, the only way we can truly appreciate the significance of this amount is by comparing it to other transactions in Scripture. And so we see here that she took 200 shekels of the 1,100 to make two different idols. One of them is, is a cast idol, and one of them is a carved idol. A carved idol would have been a statue m- like made out of wood or something, and then they would plate it with silver or gold. A cast one would be where you'd pour it into a mold. And so 200, 200 shekels was used for that. This Levite is coming to Micah, and he, he likes his agreement. He's get, got free room and board, and 10 shekels a year. So 1,100 shekels is a lot of money. We see him, uh, We see Micah all excited because he's got a Levite. He's got, he's got a shrine in his house, so instead of going to the temple, it's a shrine, and the shrine has got idols in it. And he's got a Levitical priest serving him in this kind of an atmosphere. That's disgusting, isn't it? You can imagine how this would just turn God's stomach. Everything about it is so wrong. But we have to remember what's the, what the Canaanite mindset was that the Israelites adopted. You know, the the mindset was that uh, God or the gods were transactional. If I do this, you'll do that. If I don't do this, you won't do that. And so it was like a a bargaining, quid pro, it was like a, a, a causal relationship. And they were doing this through these fertility rituals. And we've talked about what that was like and how bad it was. The nonsense that is involved there. Uh, that their sexual activity arouses the sexual activity of their pagan gods, and uh, they're blessed, you know, agriculturally and in, in, in every other way. It was just this causal relationship with these gods, and so here we find Micah think that somehow he's grasped some kind of good footing with God because he's got a Levitical priest. It's confusion, it's filth, it's chaos. And it's a terrible depiction of what's going on in a home. It always bothered me when people say I, that's their business. I don't what what two consenting adults do in the privacy of their own home. That's their business. It, it bothers me. It bothers God. It's, the, God cares about what's going on in our home. Our homes are supposed to be in order. And when we become Christians, a lot of times our life is not in order. We've made a lot of mistakes, and and the home is not in order. But if you'll put one foot in front of the other and give God a chance, He'll help you to repair damage and to put things back in place as best as possible under each circumstance. God wants to mend our fences and to mend our lives and to mend our homes. And our worship is not supposed to be something that's corrupted. We're supposed to stay true to the Bible, and to let the Bible say what it says and not change it. And our worship is supposed to be, you know, pure and clean. This is the way we're supposed to live. Well, what we're getting ready to read in chapter 18 is the rest of this story. And it involves the tribe of Dan. And I'll just let the cat out of the bag here is that the tribe of Dan failed to take control of the territory that was given to them by God. God promised that if you will yield your heart to me, I will go before you and I will give you the land. And Dan was not able to do that. So here we are. It's the period of the judges. It's the time after the conquest. And Dan does not have any territory. They've got a little slice, but it's not enough for the entire tribe. And so they decide to go find new land. And so uh, we talked about we, in First Peter how God disciplines us and chastens us and He tries to mold us to His image. And, and so sometimes we can feel God putting His finger on us and we don't like it, you know. So we're doing that get away from it. And we try to wiggle out from underneath God's finger, you know, so that we don't have to change. And this is exactly what the tribe of Dan is about to do. We'll begin reading in verse 1. And there on the map you can see, uh, just so you know, uh, you can see the territory that was given to Dan. But they're going to end up way north in that city that they call Dan. But that land was given to them, they just didn't take it. Verse 1, in those days there was no king in Israel, and the Danite tribe was looking for territory to occupy up to that time, no territory had been captured by them among the tribes of Israel. So the Danites set out five brave men from all their clans, from Zorah and Eshtel, uh, to spy out the land and explore it. And they told him, go and explore the land. They came to the hill country of Ephraim, as far as the home of Micah, and spent the night there, these five men. And while they were, the, and while they were near Micah's home, they recognized the speech of the young Levite. And so they went over to him and they asked, who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What is keeping you here? And he told them what Micah had done for him and that he had hired him as his priest. And then they said to him, Please inquire of God so we may know if we have a successful journey. The priest told them, Go in peace. The Lord is watching over the journey you are on. The five men left and they came to Laish. That's that city of Dan up there. And they saw that the people, who were, there, uh, the people who, were, who, who were there were living securely in the same way as the Sidonians, quiet and unsuspecting. There was nothing lacking in the land and no oppressive ruler. They were far from the Sidonians, having no alliance with anyone. So when the men went back to their clans at Zorah and Eshtol, the people asked them, what did you find out? And they answered, well, come on, let's go up against them, for we have seen the land and it is very good. Why wait? Don't hesitate to go and invade and take possession of the land. When you get there, you will come to an unsuspecting people in a wide open land, for God has handed it over to you. It is a place where nothing on earth is lacking. We notice that uh, in, the, in, the very, in the very beginning, we're talking about these two places, Zora and Eshtel, and then again in verse 8. Those are familiar places to us. That's where Samson's from. So think of it like this. At the beginning of the book of Judges, this tribe of Dan is going to leave their land and go north up there to that city. But at the end of the period of Judges, Samson's parents are still living in the land of their inheritance. And we remember Samson's parents. They were godly folks. So even in the midst of all of this darkness, there are these little glimpses that God gives us of His remnant, like the wonderful, charming story of the events involving Ruth, God's remnant. So while the nation is in a mess, God is still at work in people's lives, and there are still people who are faithful to Him. So... Uh, we also notice here, it's funny because these uh, these five men from Judah are in Ephraim, and they can hear the way the people in Ephraim speak, but this Levite is speaking differently. He's got an accent, a, a New York accent or something. And they're "Where are you from?" And so what we saw that. Uh, remember when when uh, the the Ephraimites came over into the land of Gideon, uh, of the land of uh, Gilead. And when they tried to get back across, after they betrayed Jephthah and tried to overthrow him, and they were trying to get back across the river, they were—remember—they were stopping them and asking them to say some words, and they couldn't say it right. So it was kind of interesting that just in Israel, these different people had these dialects. So it was uh, someone had a Boston accent talking to someone from Alabama, and it was very clear. Well, one of the most disgusting things to me in this is that, uh, you know, this this Levite spills his guts and tells him what a horrible thing he's doing. And these five men from from Dan say, wow, okay, that's great. Why don't you ask God if what we're doing is a good idea? What was their response? They said, please inquire of God so we will know if we will have a successful journey. You see, the tribe of Dan was allotted a certain territory. And God promised it to them if they would yield their hearts. But they didn't. Their reaction to this Levitical story, this Levite story, is proof enough where their heart is. Listen... listen. This entire affair is wrong. It's contrary to God's plan for the tribe of Dan. These people were trying to get out from under their situation. They didn't want to yield their hearts to God. They didn't want to repent. They didn't want to turn away from their idols. They wanted to continue doing the things they were doing. They just couldn't get it done in the place God gave them, so now they're going to move somewhere else. And so if you have to ask God if that's a good idea, then you're not using your head. It's obviously wrong. And so this Levitical answer, this Levite's answer is very highly suspicious. It's not the answer coming from God at all. And then in verse 6 there. And then finally, uh, this, this city of Laash that becomes the city of Dan, uh, you can see the Sea of Galilee on the map. And so it's, uh, it's about 27 miles north of it. And in the Old Testament, they call the Sea of Galilee the Sea of Kinneret. It's the same same sea. In the New Testament later, they would call it the Sea of Tiberias. It's the same body of water. And separating the city of Dan from the Mediterranean coast are the Lebanese mountains. And so Tyre and Sidon are two Phoenician cities. Like in modern Lebanon, uh, Phoenicia was up there. And on the coast was Tyre and Sidon. And they were powerful cities, and they were Sidonians. And so, when they saw the people living in the city, they were like, "Wow, these are Sidonians!" But they're on the other side of the mountain. They don't have an alliance with anybody. They're just an easy target. So this is what happens after that. Verse eleven: Six hundred Danites departed from Zorah. That's Samson's hometown armed with weapons of war. And they went up and they camped at kirith in Judah. This is why the place is called the camp of Dan to this day. It is west of kirith From there, they traveled to the hill country of Ephraim and arrived at Micah's house. The five men who had gone to spy out the land of Lash told their brothers, did you know that there are an Iphod, Ipod, Iphod, iPod, ipod There's an Iphod household gods and a carved image overlaid with silver in these houses. What do you think we ought to do? Now think about what you should do. So they detoured there, and they went to the house of the young Levite at the home of Micah, and they greeted him. The 600 Danite men were standing by the entrance of the gate, armed with their weapons of war. And Then the five men who had gone to spy out the land went in, and they took the carved images, overlaid with silver, the Iphod, and the household idols, while the priest was standing by the entrance of the gate with the 600 men armed with weapons of war. So they went to this Levite's house, they, they got him out, they went and took all of the stuff out of the shrine. When they entered Micah's house and took the carved image overlaid with silver, the ephod and the household idols, the priest said to them, what are you doing? He said, be quiet, keep your mouth shut. Come with us and be a father and a priest to us. Is it better for you to be a priest for the house of one person or for you to be a priest for the tribe and family in Israel? So the priest was pleased, and he took his ephod, household idols, and carved images, and he went with the people. And they prepared to leave, putting their small children, livestock, and possessions in front of them. And they did that because they were expecting trouble. They were expecting Micah to realize that he'd been robbed and to come after him. And so they put their kids and their their wives and all their possessions at the front, The men stayed at the back. Verse 22. After they were some distance from Micah's house, the men who were in their houses near it mobilized and caught up with the Danites. And they called to the Danites who turned to face them and said to Micah, what's the matter with you that you would mobilize the men? They said, well, you took the gods I had made and the priest and went away. What do I have left? How can you say to me, what's the matter with you? So the Danites said to him, don't raise your voice against us or angry men will attack you and you and your family will lose your lives. So the Danites went on their way and Micah turned to go back home because he saw that they were stronger than he was. Verse 27. After they had taken the gods Micah had made and the priest that belonged to him, they went to Laish to a quiet and unsuspecting unsuspecting people. They killed them with their swords and burned down the city. There was no one to save them because it was far from Sidon and they had no alliance with anyone. It was in a valley that belonged to Beth-rehob and they rebuilt the city and lived in it and they named the city Dan after the name of their ancestor Dan who was born to Israel. Now I see that verse 29 says who was born to Israel, that's Jacob. Dan is Jacob's fifth son through Rachel's handmaid so what says israel is talking about jacob so verse 29 they named the city dan after the name of their ancestor dan who was born to israel the city was formerly named laish the danites set up the the carved images for themselves jonathan son of gershom son of moses and his sons were priests for the danite tribe until the time of the exile from the land so they set up for themselves micah's carved image that he had made and it was there as long as the house of god was in Shiloh. We see that when uh, when the the tribe of Dan arrived at Micah's house in Ephraim and they all became aware that there was a shrine inside, that appealed to them. They wanted that. And that reveals their heart and it reveals the the disobedient nature of their mission. And look at what he says, you know, Micah. When he when he realizes he's been robbed, and he goes up to these people, and he says, "You took the gods I made, and the priest. What do I have left?" What a sad, sad situation. What a sad testimony to what it will be like for people who die without God. You know, when you've got your idol, you're happy, you're good. But when it's taken away. You've lost that connection with your gods. You've lost that ability to work your magic, to, uh, to have that transactional relationship with your gods so that you can remain in blessing. It's, it's gone. You don't have it anymore. So you, you're, now you're in search for your next idol. You've got to get that connection back to Baal and Astareth, or you're, you're undone. No truer words could be spoken than a person who has died without Christ that sense of complete and utter loss. The best thing that ever happened to Micah in his life was probably when he got robbed because he realized the emptiness of his idolatry. I can only hope that he turned his life to, back to God after this because he falls out of the picture. We no, we're no longer told about this man. but He was given this rare opportunity to repent. You know, some people are going to die and they're going to come to these realizations after they die. After it's too late, God did Micah a, a super big favor. There in verse 30, it's a, a very powerful verse. It says, Jonathan, son of Gershom, son of Moses. What verse 30 is telling us is how the cult center originated in Dan. Because we're going to read more about that in the Old Testament, this cult center there. It's telling us how it originated. And that they are uh, defending this priesthood they have there by tracing the lineage back to Moses. Now, some of your translations may have the word Manasseh, and that's because the so uh, about 100 A.D., the Maserets, they were the scribes. They convened in Jamnia, and they I'll try to get ridiculous here, but. What they did is they wanted to uh, arrive at a, a text of the Old Testament that, without any discrepancies that they were just going to continue to copy from. And they arrived at one specific text. So uh, you have to remember that the Bible was trans, was copied by hand. And people would make mistakes. Um, they would write little notes. And so the next time it was chapped, copied, somebody would put those notes into the text. And so there was little mistakes like that. And so they were trying to refine it and purify it. Well, what they did, uh, somebody had wrote in the word none above the word for Micah, for, for Moses. And it got brought down into the word. And so uh, some people think that the reason that happened is because they were trying to protect the legacy of Moses. They didn't, wanna, they didn't want that skeleton in their closet that one of his grandsons was an idolater. But you can see exactly what the tribe of Dan is trying to do. They're trying to legitimize what it is they're doing. They've got this horrendous cult center that is in opposition to what is going on in Shiloh. And they're defending it with the lineage of Moses. Gershom was the son of Moses and they were from the tribe of Levi. They're not from the tribe of Manasseh. And it tells us here in this uh, closing that Jonathan's son served in the cult center of Dan until the time of the exile from the land or the captivity. And when this captivity, this exile, whatever they're talking about, apparently coincides with the time when the tabernacle was in Shiloh. Because it says in the final verse there, it was there as long as the house of God was in Shiloh. You know, uh, years later, when the nation splits... Uh, Jeroboam will set up another cult site in the city. It's, uh, we remember when Jacob was about to die, and God changed his name to Israel. But when Jacob was about to die, he pronounced basically prophecies and blessings on his sons, on the 12 tribes. And when he came to, to Dan in Genesis chapter 49, he he gave a prophecy about the tribe and it was a two part it was a good and a bad and the good was fulfilled through Samson and the bad is fulfilled here as we're reading and all of the events that this is going to lead to with this tribe it's important for us to also notice that when the tribes are mentioned in revelation chapter 4 the tribe of dan is not there In closing, we remember that when God told the people of Israel to go into the land of Canaan and to remove the people, kill them. Don't stay with them. That sounded so harsh. And, you know, just why would God want to do that? You have to remember that the Canaanites knew that the people of Israel were coming. They had the opportunity to leave, but they chose to dig in and fight. God wanted them to not cohabitate with those people because of what it was going to do to them. It's the picture of a Christian who repents of his sins, asks Jesus to come into his heart, and he's born again, and he's brand new, and he's so clean, and everything's just so great. And over time, the world can work its way into that Christian to where you can't even tell they're a Christian anymore the canonization of Israel. God was right. When we read this, we realize that God was right all along. Do what God says because it's going to be the right thing to do. Let's pray.